this was definitely uncharted territory for me. Pete was pretty straightforward with me and that he didn't really know the track um, that we were exploring and he didn't know if it was going to get better or worse. But, you know, I was up for the adventure. I wanted to keep going. Um, and so we did. We were in a situation where, um, you know, the bike was essentially non-serviceable, especially not by Ash in her kind of injured state. Um, and then I had my bike, which is not really an ideal bike for a passenger to begin with, um, also gear on it. Uh, and then we're in this incredibly difficult terrain where it's hard enough to ride single, let alone two up. There were four foot wide sand washouts that were about three feet deep. It was not rideable. I mean, and boulders that were as large as my front tire. And next thing I know, I'm just sort of bopping between boulder, hitting my front tire from one to the next, barely keeping it together. And I remember hearing the, the bone snap. It was an ugly sound. It was really ugly. When you're off the beaten track with your motorcycle and everything's going just fine, you feel good, the bike feels good, the ground feels good, it's kind of difficult to imagine that just one small mishap can completely change the course of your day, the trip, or the adventure that you're on. And if you carry a satellite transmitter, well, you can always press the SOS button. But just how bad do things have to be before you take that final step by pushing that SOS button? And who is behind that button? What do they do? Well, today we're going to walk through an adventurous mishap and a rescue done right. And in there, we're also going to take time to sort of pull back the curtain and have a look at what goes on behind the SOS button scene. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free, maxbmw.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. I'm Sam Manick. Ted Simon. Austin Benz. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Jocelyn Snow. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. Cyclepump.com. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com Today's action movies are full of epic car crashes and fight scenes. People get thrown out of moving vehicles while going down the road, and they just roll, and they get up, and they're fine. They hit their heads. They get kicked punched, stabbed, shot, often repeatedly, 
and yet the hero and the villain always manage to jump back up and fight some more, having the resilience of a, I don't know, prize fighter mixed with the toughness of a leather saddle. Time again, they get up, they fight, and they abuse each other's bodies with seemingly nothing big happening to them. Now, reality, as with many things in life, is the polar opposite to what you see in the movies. The fact is, the real fact is, the human body is incredibly delicate. We humans are delicate creatures. I mean, if you've ever injured yourself, a cut, a sprain, twisted ankle, broken bone, bumped your head, even just hurt your finger, then you probably know, first of all, how easy it is to get injured in the first place, and second, how debilitating that injury can be. And it only takes a momentary lapse in judgment, one slip, one fall, that's it. Not an epic fight out with a half dozen attackers over a half hour period, not holding onto a rope attached to a helicopter and smashing through a large plate glass window. Just a simple injury can set you back. And when you ride a motorcycle into remote areas, away from cell service, gas stations, and other people, using all of your skills to maneuver your bike around, through, and over obstacles, it doesn't take much of an injury to render you, well, kind of useless as far as a rider goes. And if it happens, when it happens, and you're in the middle of nowhere, the question you find yourself asking is now what? How on earth am I going to get out of here? Uh, my name is Pete Day. I live in White Salmon, Washington. That's a small town in the Columbia River Gorge, about an hour outside of Portland, Oregon. And um, I run a company called Moscow Moto that I started with my business partner, Andrew Bryden, back in 2013. And um, we designed and manufacture uh, off-road and adventure touring luggage and also riding apparel. Pete, welcome to the show. Thanks. Stoked to be here. So when it comes to rescues, you have had your share of rescues. We're going to talk about one of them. But can you give just an overview of the different things that have happened to you? Well, I've had a lot of, you know, um, incidents with motorcycles and things like that over the years, but really there have been three pretty noteworthy ones. Um, one, uh, was a situation where I was on a three month trip in, um, Central America headed from Oregon down to Panama on a one-way trip on a KTM 950 super enduro. And I was in a very remote area called La Mosquitia, which um, is in sort of Northeastern Honduras, right near the border with Nicaragua. Um, and I had a crash on my bike there, went flying over the handlebars and broke the tibia and fibula in my left leg, um, leaving me stranded out in this uh, very remote area um, with uh, not a whole lot of um, population nearby. Um, so I had to kind of get out of that situation, get back to the U.S. and have surgery. And it was quite a long recovery period from that accident. Um, another one, which I'm sure we'll talk about today, is uh, the one with my girlfriend, Ashley, in the eastern Oregon desert, again, in a, a very remote area outside of cell access where she broke her foot, had a crash, broke the bike and broke her foot. Uh, and we had to extricate ourselves from that with the help of a locator beacon. And then, uh, right now actually I have a cast on my left leg from an accident. I, I suffered in Northern Laos, um, in Southeast Asia, just two weeks ago, I slid out around a turn on an oily patch and uh, broke the fibula in my left leg. And I know it sounds I'm, uh, like I'm very error or uh, very injury prone. I don't actually think I am. Um, but those uh, incidents happened over many years. We do a lot of riding, um, take a lot of chances, and sometimes things happen. 
Yeah, there's, I mean, I think we all understand there's risks riding motorcycles. And the more you do with them, particularly as you get into off-road stuff, the, the higher the risk and the higher the chance of, of running into an issue. And, and obviously, the more miles you do, the, the more exposure you have to this. What style riding do you do? Well, it's all over the board, uh, but mostly um, we do what we call enduro touring. I mean, I guess my trips kind of fit actually in two broad categories. There's the enduro touring trip where we're riding for anywhere from four or five up to maybe 10 days um, and primarily off-road terrain. You know, there'll be pavement involved, but usually the pavement is just there to connect different dirt sections or to get out, get gas, get back. Um, Or sometimes maybe we'll ride seven or eight days in one direction on dirt and then one or two days back on pavement, but the pavement is not the point of the trip. It's just for, uh, you know, connecting the loop. Um, so that's one type of trip is the enduro touring. And then the other is the, uh, international travel aspect. So we will, uh, travel all over the world doing fly-in trips where we'll drop into a small country in Africa, South America, Asia, usually one of those three places, because we're often traveling in the wintertime when the U S motorcycle industry is slow. Um, and that's when we get our time off. So we'll go to a warm spot, which is those three continents. And, um, and then we'll acquire a bike, sometimes by renting it, sometimes by buying it, uh, sometimes by borrowing it. We'll sort of, we pick the country we want to go to first, and, uh, and then we figure out how to get a bike after. So sometimes um, we'll be on small Chinese-made dual sports. Sometimes we'll be on big uh, European venture bikes. It just totally depends on the country and the situation. So those are the two types of trips I do, the enduro touring off-road and then the international travel. And when you're doing these trips, what are you after? Is it mainly looking to get off the beaten track? Uh, totally. And and that's the one thing that they really have in common. You know, we go to some very uh, out there places that don't see a lot of tourism and travel. And then once we get there, we get on the bike and we head even further out into the countryside. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think getting off the beaten I mean, uh, getting off the beaten track is definitely part of it. And, you know, it's really backcountry access and and world travel. So it's about seeing places that would be very difficult to see uh, any other way. Not so much the culture, but the landscape. Both. Actually, I would say on the international travel, uh, the culture is a huge, huge component of it. On the enduro touring, the landscape is a huge component because obviously there's not a lot of people out there. Um, But uh, yeah, international travel, the cultural aspect is huge. You know, we love to get out into small villages where people don't see a lot of tourism and where we're arriving on the bikes as much of a novelty to the people we're visiting as they are to us. Now, when you're heading off on these trips, how do you set up um, your, your emergency equipment in case something goes wrong? What, what are you taking? Uh, I mean, generally, uh, we both carry inreaches. So I'm a big fan of the, the Garmin inreach. It was originally the Delorme inreach, and now it's owned by Garmin, the Garmin inreach, um, because it's like a two-way satellite locator. So that's something that we each carry, and that gives us a way a backup way to get in touch with each other and also to get in touch with um, help if something goes wrong. And then we take our cell phones. We have U.S. cell phones, but they're unlocked, so we can swap SIM cards. So um, typically we'll uh, take out our U.S. SIM card, put in a SIM card for the country we're visiting, so we have a local number and inexpensive high-speed data while we're there. And in a lot of developing countries, the, the cell networks are really strong because they sort of skip the entire landline phase and went straight to cell phones. So their, their cell phone infrastructure is often more robust than what we even have here in the U.S. Um, so we have our cell phone, we have our in-reaches, um, and then uh, we always have uh, travel insurance also, which is a really important part of the equation, whether you get it through your locator beacon or you get it through an insurance company or both. Do you buy it, the insurance, through GIA, through your um, Garmin in-reach? 
I buy the GS insurance for sure. Um, and then I also buy insurance, travel, typical travel insurance through a company called Travel Guard. And uh, travel insurance usually has two components. There's a trip cancellation component and then a health component. So the trip cancellation says, hey, I spent all this money to be on this awesome trip. If something goes wrong, can I get that money reimbursed? Um, and then the health insurance is like, okay, hey, if you break your leg, go to the hospital, have to get x-rays, get treated, who pays that bill? So we're not really so interested in the cancellation insurance. We never get that. We usually set it like it'll ask you when you're applying to put in the value of your trip. But we usually set the value at like $50 or $100. We don't care about getting reimbursed for the travel expenses, but we want the medical piece. Mm. So um, that's how we do it. And those policies are usually really inexpensive. Like this trip we were just on in Southeast Asia, we were there for a month and the policy cost us $50 a piece. Oh, um, wow. And it, it paid for all of my medical expenses over there, my flights home, uh, everything. And also... It's not just the um, uh, the the paying the medical fees. It's also the assistance, the logistical assistance of getting flights and help. You know, when you're stuck somewhere. Mm-hmm. And again, this is something that Geos does, and there's an overlap between the two. Um, I'm not necessarily an expert on it, but Geos is mainly focused on. Uh, my understanding is that Geos is mainly focused on uh, getting you out, whereas the travel insurance is mainly focused on the medical expenses themselves. What about um, first aid? Are you carrying a first aid kit and do you take a first aid course? Uh, We carry a first aid kit and actually we're about to take uh, a first aid course. My girlfriend actually had some medical training, but um, we're about to do an adventure medical course with a a company that's based out of Bend, Oregon. Well, I want to talk about this uh, incident with Ashley um, where she broke her, her ankle, I think it was. Can you set that up? What was that trip about? That trip was one of the enduro touring trips I was uh, explaining earlier, where we're um, basically riding all dirt. And, you know, we were fortunate to live in a part of the world where there's a lot of public land, especially in eastern Oregon and eastern Washington, where it's a lot of desert, not much population, really, really interesting terrain and beautiful riding. So we were in southeastern Oregon, kind of just way off the grid there riding. And and, uh, there was a a section we wanted to connect uh, between two spots on some tracks we hadn't taken before. We could see them on satellite images, but... Um, but hadn't actually ridden on them before. And so we decided to try one of them and we got into it and I was on my 950 and she was on a, a GS650. So we were on big bikes, not our, our, uh, our small bikes. And, um, we, uh, got into this track and it was really beautiful, but it got progressively more challenging, um, for the big bikes. And we were fully loaded also because we we're traveling for a week. I, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of remember him saying we're, we're going off into uncharted territory. So, you know, I can't be blamed, basically. He was just giving me a disclaimer. There was no like, I don't think either of us really talked about stopping. We're just, that's not, we're not of that mindset. That's not like us to say, oh, we're not going to go. We're going to go check it out, right? Like, we're going to do it. My name is Ashley Myrie, and I am from California originally, and I am the brand content director here at Moscow Moto. <laughs> you know, it's funny when I think back to that trip, it, it's all the whole scene is a little bit fuzzy because it was all in this, this state of such excitement, you know, Pete and I hadn't been dating very long. It was our first big ride together. We'd had like a, I think we'd done a weekend trip where we were just out doing little day loops and stuff, but this was our first big, like overnight, let's see what you're made of kind of trip. Was, right? it, was this a test and ride between you guys? You, like to see, <laughs> is this going to work? Is he good enough of a rider no. to go with me? Am I good enough of a rider to go with him? 
I think so. A little bit. I mean, we were pretty much all in at this point, like full blown in love, couldn't spend a second apart kind of thing. But this was really, yeah, this was the first big ride when I think back to it. And I remember when the weather started rolling in on that trip going, oh, gosh, are you kidding me right now? Like, I was thinking, oh, hopefully we'll have picture perfect weather. We'll be sitting around the campfire at night, drinking whiskey, hanging out, just, you know, living it up. And the very first night we were just bombarded with crazy rainstorms. We had to set up a tarp and hide out underneath the tarp the whole night. And of course we made the best of it. We were having a great time, but I knew at that point that the capabilities of my 650 in this terrain were not going to be very well paired. (laughs) And I didn't want to let on to him how nervous I was about that. But the next morning, it was pretty apparent as soon as we took off from camp. And about every 20 seconds in the mud, I was going sideways and crashing. And these weren't very dramatic crashes. They were like sort of laughing and covered in mud, just total hysteria. Like, this is ridiculous. We got to get out of here. And I think later that day, if memory serves, we did find a little bit of a dry patch and and things cleared up a bit. So that was good because I wasn't covered in mud any longer and I wasn't quite as embarrassed. But as the afternoon, this was a really rough, rough trail. He said even when he went back afterwards and rode it, it was a rough trail. Oh, yeah. So, well, in the morning, it didn't start rough. It was just extremely muddy. I'm talking about like really deep, super slippery kind of mud. Like there's nothing you can possibly do. And if I remember correctly, I had on hide nows, which are not super dirt oriented. They're like maybe a 70-30 tire. Not that that's a great excuse, but they weren't faring very well in the mud. So later that afternoon, though, once it dried up, we did get onto that really difficult trail that Pete was pretty straightforward with me and that he didn't really know the track um, that we were exploring and he didn't know if it was going to get better or worse. But, you know, I was up for the adventure. I wanted to keep going. Um, And so we did. I really don't remember much in between rough trail. I can handle this to what the hell are we going to turn back? Can we even turn back? What is this? Like, this is not a trail. I mean, there were four foot wide sand washouts that were about three feet deep and boulders that were as large as my front tire. It was not rideable. But how do you feel knowing that the night before you had sort of second thoughts about your bike? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was up for it. I've I've gotten myself into hairy situations, but I will say admittedly, this was this was the first of what now has been many uh, pushing of my boundaries and my own limits with riding. Pete is just like an all around athlete. The guy is like so impressive and you want to keep up, you know, like I, I like to think of myself as pretty athletic as well. And I'm not the best rider. I don't race or anything like that, but um, yeah, I can hold my own. And so I wanted to go, I wanted to push off into the unknown. You know, it was like, it was exciting. I remember that for sure. But th- there's definitely some transition between, oh, this is exciting and I think I can do it to what the hell, where are we? And I don't remember. It was almost like we flipped a switch and we were there. I'd never really seen anything like it because the people that I'd ridden with previously wouldn't have even thought of going off onto a trail that looked like that and that they didn't know. 
Um, so this was definitely uncharted territory for me. And yeah, I, I didn't know if it would be faster. You know, we're looking at the map. We kind of stopped when things got hairy and we had gone so far, you know, that point that you get to where you say, okay, well, we've come this far. Is it better to keep going or oh, yeah. should we turn around? It, it's the worst because you know what you've already went through. You know how difficult it was. Yeah. You don't know what lies ahead, whether it's going to get easier. And you know that that trip back is, is going to be pretty torturous. Exactly. So that was the point. And I think we both agreed that there was no pressure or anything like that. We both agreed, okay, let's continue on, but just be careful. And shortly after that is when I, I broke the clutch lever um, and I, I crashed. Yeah. Uh, in that kind of rocky, rough terrain, the roads that just don't get used very much. Um, you know, we were dropping the bikes a decent amount. It's very rocky. And Ash had a crash. Um, the 650 went down, the clutch lever broke. Um, and it didn't break in a way that we could just put a vice grip and kind of get back on the road. It actually broke at the, the assembly itself. So it was irreparable. Well, lead us up to the moment when it happens. So all I remember was being surrounded by these unimaginably huge boulders. I mean, I'd never seen anything like it. And then also managing these sand washouts. And, um, and next thing I know, I'm just sort of bopping between boulder hitting my front tire from one to the next barely keeping it together and I think I went down for a dab with my left foot and the bike just leaned too far and fell completely um, with my foot perpendicular to the ground and I remember hearing the the bone snap and it was an ugly sound. It was really ugly. I'd never broken a bone in my life. I was, I think, 24 at the time, maybe just had turned 25. I'd never broken a bone. And I was very proud of that. And I did not want to believe that that had just happened. Um, I pretty much picked the bike up immediately, like got the bike right back up, realized that the clutch lever was broken. Oh, God. I mean, I just could not believe it. You, you picked and the I was bike thinking, up. Why would you pick the bike up? Is that that automatic reaction that we do when it, oh, yeah. it falls over and you've desperately got to get the thing stood back up again as if there's people watching? 100%. Nothing to see here. Nothing yeah. to see. No, no, no. We don't need to talk about it. I'll be just fine. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that sort of thing. Um, but we did. We stopped and talked about it a little bit. Pete was pretty concerned because the trail was, it was really ugly. It was so bad. And um, the clutch lever definitely presented a new, new issue. That was actually the thing we were talking about most. I was convinced that I had just broken a toe or something. My, my foot definitely felt quite uncomfortable, but I wasn't like writhing around in pain at this point. So at this point, you're focused on the bike. You, you, you know yeah, your pain. Totally you're focused, focused on this, on this clutch the bike. And, and the clutch lever, by oh, the way, yeah. as far as bark busters go, uh, your bike didn't have bark busters, did it? It did, but I think they were just the stock. I'm pretty sure they were just the stock bark busters. Yeah, just the plastic shield. So you didn't have the yeah. aluminum reinforcement bar, which very likely would have saved that clutch lever. Very likely it would have saved the clutch lever. That's right. And I think I had already broken it at some point. So it was a shorty and, and that had already proven to save me from many breaks, but this was a bad one. Like it just took a rock straight to the lever and broke off right at the base. So there was no operating the clutch whatsoever. And I didn't even realize that you could ride a bike without the clutch lever. Like I didn't know that was a thing. How far into the trip are you? I think we're about halfway in. Okay. So halfway in, Ashley goes down, as you said, and she's injured her foot. What do you do then? You, you stop and, and take stock. What happens? 
yeah, we stop and take stock and it, we realized that the bike is it's going to be very difficult to, to ride the bike because the clutch is not working. So as soon as you turn the ignition, the bike moves forward. It wants to move forward. And there's no, there's no option of sort of uh, feathering the clutch and, and, and working your way through the technical terrain. It's just like all forward. Um, so that's a challenging situation to deal with no matter what. And especially when you have a broken foot, that's uh, that's difficult to, to walk on. And of course, you know, when you break something, a lot of times at first it doesn't hurt that much, but it starts to swell and the pain starts increasing over time. It's pretty hot out too. And we were tired. The riding was challenging. I mean, it was fun, but we, it was definitely inappropriate for the bikes. And we're both dirt bikers, so you know, sometimes we'll keep pressing on the big bike past a point where we should, probably should have turned around. But our our eyes are telling us we can do it, um, even though the bikes are kind of bouncing around all over the place. I was determined we're going to get out of here. I mean, I just wanted that heroic victory of like getting out of the trail, you know, and I also didn't see any other option. I mean, we didn't have a ton of supplies. We couldn't go backwards. And it looked on the map like we were only as the crow flies about eight to 10 miles from uh, a real road. I I wouldn't even call what we were on a road. Um, It might have been a road like 300 years ago, 200 years ago, but not now. So you're getting ready to ride, to continue on. You've got the bike stood up. How are you feeling at that point about your foot? Pretty uneasy about it, but I was convinced that if I could just focus ahead on the trail and get through, um, that, that the foot, I would figure it out later. I didn't know what was going on with it. And honestly, I really wasn't contemplating it being broken. Mm. I was just, I, that was completely out of my mind. It wasn't an option. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, I broke my toe. I don't know what that sound was. I was just in denial. But if if you, if you like knowing what you know now, you know, you knew that was, no, it was broken. Would you Uh do the same thing? Probably. (laughs) <laughs> so you haven't learned anything then. probably, probably. <laughs> don't tell my dad <laughs> yeah that says something probably about your personality so. doesn't it <laughs> yeah i think it does yeah okay, so, so we continued yeah i continued as far as we could um i think i fell two or three more times on the same side what was that like riding with the foot like that uh, it was more of the clutch lever, to be honest, that I was focused on. I could not believe how difficult it was to not be able to like regulate any of the power of the bike, yeah. um, in that terrain, because as you're hitting big rocks and going through little sand washouts and trying to, to bridge gaps with the bike, um, you want to be able to either pop the clutch for more power or pull it in for a little less. And I couldn't do any of that. So it was quite difficult. I mean, I was just being jolted by everything on the trail. I did not feel in control at all. And, um, and it was it, it was quite scary. Every time, yeah, every time you stall it, you have to start the whole thing all over again mm. and try to get going. It was very stressful. Um, and I think I was operating off of adrenaline purely. It didn't make any sense what I was doing. <laughs> That's for sure. So I continued as far as I could. And then I remember that that last fall, I think I fell two, three more times. And on that last fall, I crunched the foot again. And that was it. I knew I couldn't couldn't ride anymore. There was no way I was at that point pretty close to tears. Um, I don't think I had cried yet, but I was pretty, pretty darn close. And I just was felt defeated. Um, I wanted to stop. Totally. 
the bike was broken. Ashley's foot was damaged. So we, we realized we we're going to have to leave the bike, uh, that we, she wasn't gonna be able to ride it out, but we still had my bike running. And although the terrain was difficult, um, you know, we thought maybe by accommodation of, of walking and riding to, up, we could get ourselves out. So we, we kind of, uh, consulted the map, saw how far it was to get out. I don't remember, but the distance wasn't huge. You know, it was probably, uh, 15 miles or 20 miles or something like that to get to a gravel road. And, uh, and so, um, you know, that doesn't sound like very much on a bike, but when you're on foot or on a broken foot, that's a long distance. Mm-hmm. And, um, so what we did initially was we, we consolidated down to, uh, our, just our emergency stuff. So we, we took shelter, um, took, uh, mm-hmm. water, took food and kind of dished everything else. There was a big rock and we, we, I pushed the bike over by the rock and stashed all the stuff in a little kind of coyote bed nest underneath the rock there. And, um, made a mental note and marked a GPS track and, um, took enough stuff off my bike so she could get on the back and she put her stuff in, in, uh, a backpack and, you know, uh, she sat on the bike and we started riding. And uh, again, this, this terrain was pretty tough, uh, lots of big rocks, lots of, uh, washouts and gaps and stuff like that. And, uh, so we just would get to the tricky bits and she would get off and try to walk. Um, and some of the tricky bits were getting up over these ridgelines that were just really rocky, uh, steep, loose climbs. And so it just wasn't possible, let alone safe to try to tackle them with two people. So we would get to the bottom of one of those, she would get off, walk up it and I would ride. And that worked for a little while, but she was getting very exhausted. I'm walking, walking, I'm walking a lot more than I anticipated walking. And eventually the, the signaling from my brain to my foot to continue walking just wasn't happening anymore. I started sort of toppling over into sagebrush and uh, <laughs> I I was baffled. You know, I didn't understand. I'm like, what's happening here? Come on, Ash, let's get, let's do it. Because the pain, it was there, but it wasn't excruciating enough to where I understood that the messaging wasn't working anymore from my brain to my foot. I was, I was really confused. (laughs) And, um, yeah, after, after trying, I think, I think I fell over three or four times and on the fourth try, I just sat there and waited. You know, I would get to the top of the hill, get to where it's flat, stop, look back and wait for her to catch up. And there was one point where she, she tipped over into a bush off the trail walking. And I just thought, that's it. This isn't, this isn't going to work. We need to call in some help. We need to figure out another plan. I'm so grateful that Pete had previous experience with a rescue and could really talk me down from thinking that it was far outsized a reaction to the scenario. You know, it, it seems like you carry this device and you have the, you have the, the rescue capabilities, but you don't really want to use it, right? Like what, how do you know when that moment presents itself it's very difficult because mm. there's that thing of we're, we're, we're doing it ourselves we're out there on our own we've taken the risks and now all of a sudden we're gonna have to push the button and say somebody come and rescue me because i can't do it anymore and yeah it, it's a big moment i think for most of us it is yeah and you think okay really this is it this seems kind of lame i expected it to be something more <laughs> dramatic like or that's what i was thinking anyway maybe that's just me that's what i thought was Wow, really? This is it, huh? This is <laughs> this is that moment? Well, it's surprising when you're standing here healthy. It's surprising how little it takes to make you immobile. You know, you, you can get right. a cut or a sprain or something and all of a sudden everything changes. That stability, the toughness that you had before, we don't have it anymore. I mean, it's just it seems to be gone. It's so fragile. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's true. And then all of a sudden, the other factors start to come into play, like food and water and warmth. Uh, when you can't move around, what 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 do we have to survive? And embarrassingly, we were planning on being um, in town to get gas and to re-up on supplies that day. So water was the first thing that I realized we were scarcely unprepared with. I think we only had a liter of water left between the two of us. And it was very hot. Um, this is the middle of summer in the desert. I think it was June, right around my birthday, if I remember correctly. So, yeah, not not the best. You know, I, I didn't know how long we were still weighing our options. Are we going to hit the button? What are we going to do? And I think Pete pretty well knew at that point that we were going to need to call for help. And I was still grappling with it because, as I said, I was having this. I don't know if it was a it it was it was a little bit of a struggle with my ego. Like, really, this is that moment. I don't need help right now. I mean, come on. We're so close to the road. I can see it right there. There's got to be a way out. And eventually I just accepted it. Um, And it was such a relief, to be honest. So then you stop and you think, okay, we have to get somebody. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we have to do something. So. The first thing we did was, um, because we brought a shelter with us, you know, we set up, it was very hot and we set up a, just the rain fly of the tent, you know, a lot of modern like backpacking tents, you can, you can set it up without the body of the tent, you know, just the rain fly over the poles. Mm -hmm. So the air can still kind of flow underneath. So we, we made a little shade shelter, uh, for her because we, we knew it was going to be a while before we got help. And, um, and then, uh, kind of took stock of our water supply, which was limited. I think maybe we had half a camelback left or something like that for the two of us. Um, and, uh, and then we pulled out our inreach and, um, you know, the, cause the options were, you know, one is I continue forward, which is, uh, and, and try to get help and bring it back to her. But you know, what happens if I crash or something bad happens to me now we're separated that could get dicey. Um, and also it's quite nerve wracking for the injured person to, to be there alone for an indefinite, you know, unknown amount of time, mm-hmm. but that would have been an option for sure. If we hadn't had, had our, our located beacon, but we have the inreach, you know, we pay for it we have to pay for the insurance. We pay for all the stuff. So that was our, our lifeline. And, and so we pulled that thing out and we hit the button. And pressing the button was a relief. It was. Yeah. Because panic does start to set in after a while once we, you know, we pulled my foot out of the boot and looked at it and it was clearly not right. Um, And the pain, I had never experienced anything like that. So there they're sitting in the Oregon desert, miles away from anyone or anything. And their hope is fully dependent on that SOS button they just pushed. But lucky for them, far above their heads in space are a network of satellites with antennas pointing downward, listening. Listening 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for just the kind of signal that is sent from a portable satellite transmitter like they just sent, an SOS. The SOS is embedded with the latitude and longitude of their location, as well as an ID for the transmitter. And once that's picked up by a satellite, it's passed to another satellite, and then another satellite, and then another satellite, until finally it's beamed back down to Earth, to this place. GEOS, or G-E-O-S, which stands for, for what? What what does GEOS stand for? 
<laughs> we get that question a lot. Actually, it doesn't stand for anything. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somebody I'm just serious. picked this name and it was probably at the, at the start. It was no big deal. But now you got to have to keep answering for this. Why don't you make something up for it? <laughs> I mean, uh, maybe one day, but as of right now, we don't have any Global Emergency <laughs> Operations Operation Services or services? something. Oh, wait, there you go. Hey, that's it. I'm <laughs> <laughs> on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> this is Emily Thompson at GEOS. She's been there for quite a while. She sort of started at the bottom and, and worked her way up to her current position as Director of Partner Relations. Oh, yes. I started off from the very bottom and just worked my way up. <laughs> Tell us exactly what is GEOS. Uh, well, I mean, the main part of it is we are the company that monitors a number of satellite emergency notification devices and cellular-based devices all over the world. And we coordinate rescues for people that are in distress and in remote locations. So when someone presses the SOS button on their spot or on their Garmin inReach or um, Zoleo, mm -hmm. when they press that button, you guys are the ones that deal with the emergency. Yep, that's correct. Whenever uh, somebody has that device and there's an emergency, they can press the SOS button and it'll come into our system with their profile information and their latitude and longitude. And so once we get into our system, we will plot that location and immediately determine the agency that we're going to contact to coordinate the rescue. And we begin reaching out to them as well as the device user and their emergency contacts. Can you um can you sort of walk us through as if you were as if you were walking into the command center and sort of just give us a, a rough layout of what you're looking at? Uh, yeah. And so we actually just moved to a new uh, location last year. So it's in a much bigger area now, but when you walk in, you see about what is it? eight desks, eight little cubicles all together where and we did it this way so that everybody can communicate better just because like I said everybody works in a, as a team a lot of the time. But you walk in and you see the eight cubicles all together and three monitors at each station, a phone, you know, headset and everything. And then when you look up, there are three TVs, TV monitors on the wall where we will, uh, where we display the RSOE, which is, you know, where we can monitor any disasters that are going around all over the world. Uh, and then we also have up our monitoring system, our monitoring software up there, just uh, so that everybody can see when a new alert comes in, in case you know they're doing, you know, something else. And uh, then another, uh, then there's another screen that will display, you know, whatever information that they may need to know that day if there's any you know, tests going on, because there's plenty of people that set up tests in advance, and so they just display all that information that they may need. You mentioned RSOE. What is that? So that's just uh, it's a. Can't think of what it stands for right now, but it's where they monitor uh, all any disasters or worldwide events that are going on currently. It will display up there, so it's like a live feed. And if we need more information, you know, if there's a hurricane or tornado or something going on, if we get happen to get like a bunch of alerts from one section, we're going to glance up there and see if there's some kind of disaster going on automatically, uh. just because you know maybe it's a uh, an avalanche or something. So we kind of just have that just in case something's going on we're, or if we want to know there's a major hurricane hitting somewhere so that we're prepared. And, and what do you do in that instance where there's something major going on and you get a bunch of calls? Uh, I mean, it, we have, I mean, it's happened before. Definitely. I've been, I was working down there once and we had, there was an avalanche and there were just several that came in back to back. And at that time I didn't know it was an avalanche until we kind of have to just, redo that, not redo the SFP, but just kind of um, tweak it a little bit where if we see it's all coming from the same location, one person is going to be in contact with the agency and just say, hey, we've received several emergency alerts from this area. There's something going on. Mm. And so we just kind of have to you know, 
try to triage it if we can. Uh, you know, we'll try to message any of the device, try to figure out what's going on and such. So, but we'll still be in contact with everybody the same way. It may just be a little different if there's, you know, 20 coming in back to back. You used to work in the, in the coordination center, the emergency coordination center itself. You used to sit there at the screen. Can you describe, you know, sort of step-by-step what happens when someone presses the button and it comes into your office? Yeah. So when it comes in, we're just alerted via our gym monitoring system. It comes in with the user's profile information and their exact latitude and longitude. And so whenever it comes in, we immediately uh, start plotting the location to determine the appropriate agency that we would need to contact. And uh, if it is a two-way device, somebody is also sending a message to that device requesting the nature of the emergency. But we don't require, you know, we don't need confirmation of the emergency before we dispatch it. We start dispatching right away. And it all kind of happens at the same time. Everybody in the IERCC, when a call comes in, everybody works together. So somebody is, you know, sending that message. Someone else is starting to call the agency while someone else is calling the emergency contacts and attempt to gather more information about what the device user is actually out doing. Well, you just mentioned IERCC. What is that? That's the International Emergency Response Coordination Center. So that's the actual monitoring center. So we have the, you know, we have GEOs and then we have the, uh, it's at IERCC. It's all part of GEOs. Is this at some sort of special location or is this in an office building somewhere? Uh, it's here in Montgomery, Texas. Uh, we are in, we're in an office building, but all of our, you know, data stored in our, in the bunker and the data center here at um, the Westland Bunker building. A bunker? Yeah, there is an underground bunker here. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about that? Uh, yeah, it's just at uh, is where our data is stored. It's just safely, you know, secured down there. Uh, we don't actually operate in the bunker. It's just in the building that we uh, are in. So, but it's a secure facility. Oh, that would have been so much more cool if you were operating I in the know. bunker. If you, I know. If it sounds go, way cooler. Yeah, it does for sure. Going and swipe <laughs> the card, you know, and going down some secret tunnel or something like that. But okay, we'll just we'll just imagine that with the bunker. Okay, yeah, so I know it sounds way cooler. <laughs> so so back to you sitting in front of your computer. When you get the alert, what is it like a red dot that that lights up and starts blinking at you or something on the screen? What's it look like? Uh, it's just, uh, I mean, it is red <laughs> and then we click on it to acknowledge it and it turns yellow. Uh, but it's just, we are able to view, you know, all of the incidents that we come, that come into our system. So we can, we'll be viewing, you know, several different incidents that come in, but when it comes in, it's red and we change it to yellow to acknowledge it. And then all the information's right there in front of us. We actually use three screens just because there's a lot of different things that we have to open up and use. Uh, so it's, you know, there's a lot going on at once. So when someone presses the button and the emergency comes into your call center, it's more than one person dealing with it. You mentioned there were several other people. So one person presses that button on the screen and then it, then what happens? And then everyone in the IERCC just kind of, you know, has a part in the, or plays a part in this emergency situation. So, uh, you know, obviously there's other emergencies going on, but when this comes in and when a new emergency comes in, that's when everybody just kind of works together. And like I said, someone is sending the message or keeping on all the messages. Someone is calling the emergency contacts and someone is speaking with emergency services. And it all kind of, when it first comes in, everything happens all at once. And that's when uh, everything is just you know going on. But then it starts to dial down, obviously, as the emergency is going on and kind of one person starts to handle, you know, keeping up with the updates and updating the device user and emergency contacts. How many people are doing this? Uh, typically, there's about uh, six people on shift at once. Hmm. So you mentioned the first thing you do is look at the coordinates and figure out where they are. How does that determine how you handle the rescue? 
Well, the location, you know, it'll determine who we're going to actually contact. You know, it's different every all around the world. In the United States, for example, you know, we're going to reach out to the county sheriff's department, or if it's in a national park, we'll reach out to the national park. Up in Canada, you know, we'll reach out to the main RCMP headquarters for the province that they're in, and then we'll coordinate with the local RCMP. And then, you know, uh, anywhere else in the world, we coordinate with rescue coordination centers. So we have a main point of contact within each country that we'll coordinate with. So as soon as you look at the coordinates, you have some sort of database that you go to that tells you exactly who to call. Mm-hmm. And then you make the call to them. Then what happens? Uh, we'll make the call to them, give them all the information. Give them, or the first thing we want to give them is the location so that they can start plotting it on their end. And, uh, you know, so they know exactly what they're, you know, what resources they're going to need or who they're going to have to contact. Depending on the agency or the country, a lot of the agencies, you know, will coordinate with local emergency services or, you know, they have their specific contacts that they coordinate with, which is why we will reach out to, you know, the main rescue coordination center within the country. And they're used to dealing with GIOS. I mean, they recognize the name. They know what you're doing when you're calling. Yeah, we have established relationships with several agencies all over the world. So they're so frequent, you know, they're so common now. They're just kind of, they've gotten to where they know who we are. They know the, the name, the IERCC or that it's because of a garment or a spot or whatever it may be. Now, we might be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because I think we forgot about Pete and Ashley sitting in the Oregon desert waiting for a response from this emergency process that we're just talking about. So we'll come back to this and ask some more questions. But meanwhile, Pete and Ashley are sitting there. And now what's happened is they've sent their message to GEOS. GEOS has responded to them because they have a two-way device. So there's communication going back and forth, letting them know how the rescue is coming along. It, uh, you know, immediately got a response from the folks at, at uh, the InReach or at Geos saying, you know, okay, what's going on? What's your emergency? And this is where, because uh, I've done a rescue with the, the one-way device like the spot where, you know, it just sends out a, a, an SOS, but there's no way to communicate back and forth with the responders on the other side. Um, and that's a very frustrating experience. In this case, with the two-way communication on the InReach, you, you immediately get a message, you know, hey, what's going on? And we say, hey, we have a broken leg or broken foot or something. Well, is she bleeding? Is she not bleeding? You know, are you okay? Are you safe? Are you stable? Yeah, we're okay. Um, and so you have this communication where you can kind of explain to them what's going on. And then when the first responders, they know what they're getting into, right? They don't just get this message like something's gone horribly wrong. Send in the cavalry. Mm-hmm. They get a message that's like really targeted, like, hey, we're in this location. There's two of us. You know, we have shelter. We have water. Um, we have a broken leg. No, it's not bleeding. Send help. And at that point, you get this satisfaction, the comfort of, of knowing that you've got somebody on the, on the go, whereas with the one way, you're just hoping. Yeah, exactly. Like with the one way, when I, I had that incredibly painful break on my tibia and fibula down in Honduras, um, you know, I hit the, I had a, a, a spot locator beacon with me and I hit the button and, you know, the, the light just changes color. That's it. And it's just sitting there blinking. And, you know, I, I don't know if anything ever happened or would have happened. I was there by myself, you know, for three hours on the side of the road in the middle of the road, just kind of laying there and excruciating pain, unable to get the bike up, unable to do anything, just hoping that someone will come along. And if they do come along, that they'll be a good guy, not a bad guy. And, uh, and I was lucky that uh, after several hours, a truck full of Honduran narco patrol soldiers showed up just like out of nowhere, this big truck with all the dudes in the back with their guns and stuff. And, and, uh, and they were able to help me pick me up and take me back to their base. But if that hadn't happened, I mean, I, I, I don't know if anything was happening on the other end of that device. I mean, mm-hmm. what really happens when they call Honduran search and rescue and ask for help? I don't know. I mean, I was out there, you know? 
Before you hit the button this time with Ashley, was it a lot of apprehension? I mean, do you, do you look at it as, as a big thing to press the button or is it yeah. just? No, it's a big thing. I mean, I, it, nobody wants to feel like, I mean, it's like you, you're out there. Part of the whole exercise is self-reliance, you know, and being able to take care of yourself. And so there's a little bit of like capitulation and deciding to hit the button. Um, and, you know, but I think it comes down to like, in that situation, we had options. You know, I, like I said, I could have continued on my own, um, but we have this device, and that's why we brought it, and that's why we pay for it, and so we used it. You know, and and do you do you feel like silly or, or, or stupid that you're doing that or anything like that? Is it is it those sort of feelings? Uh, I think it is. Uh, I would say not really. And I like it. It uh, it maybe a little bit of that, you know, but like it's not like overpowering or anything. It's just something that you think of, you know, like you, you don't, that, I feel like it's a device of last resort, you know, but not really last resort because we had options. It's just like, you don't really want to use it if you don't have to. Right. But ultimately in a situation like that, even if you ride in, you're still getting search and rescue. You know, if one, if you separate, you're still flagging search and it, all the process. Once you arrive in your destiny at your destination, whatever that is, when you say we had split up and I had taken off on my own, right. Uh, you we're, what's going to happen. I'm going to get to the next town. I'm going to start trying to put together a coalition to kind of unfuck the situation. And, uh, and so the inReach is just a way to bypass all of that and, uh, and get someone in there faster. And for the, the, um, the responders, it's a great benefit to them. You know, I talked to them about it a bit actually, um, on that, like the BLM guys, they all use the inReach to keep in touch with each other when they're out in the field. So they all have one strapped to their chest and that's how they communicate with each other when they're out there doing their patrols. Um, and they said that they wish everybody had one of those things because it, it, it makes their life so much easier because they know exactly what they're dealing with. They know exactly where the person is. You can imagine trying to execute a rescue and someone shows up in a town and they're like, oh, my God, my friend's bleeding out. It's crazy. I don't know oh, where are they located. Well, you know, you just go up that one road and then there's like the big rock and you turn and then it's like a little track and then there's a watering hole. I mean, they, you know, and what's going on? He's bleeding. Is something broken? I don't know. There's just blood everywhere. I mean, it, it, what a mess for a first responder. What do you bring? How, how do you get there? You know, the inReach just simplifies all of that for them and also just like greatly reduces their response time. And, and with the two-way, I mean, you, you can get the details up, whereas like you said before, you, with the one-way, you press the button and what are they going to send in? Well, they're going to have to send in the maximum. Like they have to treat it as if there's a dire emergency. Whereas if with the two-way, they can talk to you and say, well, you've got some time here and they have some time. So, you know, they don't necessarily send in a, you know, the helicopter or the plane. They can look at a, at a more, well, probably a more sensible mode of transportation to send in for you in this instance. Exactly. And I mean, I'll give you another uh, uh, side note, another example of a time when I've used the inReach also in the Eastern Oregon desert. I was out there with a couple of friends. Uh, we're exploring. We're on, a, again, a multi-day trip. And we come across a hunter that is by himself. And he's got uh, his 4 by 4 stuck. And he's like too far from anywhere to walk out. There's no cell service. Uh, he's got his dogs with him. And he wasn't really sure what to do, you know? And at the inReach, uh, we were able to text his buddy uh, or his wife who texted his buddy and his buddy came out and bailed him out. You know, we don't have to just hit this like, oh, my God, button. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we were able to send a message and say, hey, you know, my name's Pete. I'm here with this uh, with your husband. Uh, here's what's happened. He's fine, but he needs help. Can you text his buddy and ask if he'll drive out and pick him up? 
And that and there, like, sure. that is a prime example of if you were, if you just had a one way and you press the button, the message also goes to your family or your contacts or whatever. And now all of a sudden you have everyone panicking. Something's happened to Pete and Ashley and they don't realize that you're pressing it for someone else. So there's, there's some, some real issues with, with the, the one way device, no doubt. You press the button. What happens next? Uh, so we, so we press the button and, uh, we have this text communication and they say, okay, you know, they understand, they ask us questions, they get to the bottom of the situation and, um, we say, okay, we're going to organize search and rescue. And, uh, it turns out, you know, because I think we're not bleeding. I mean, there's not like any super panicky emergency to deal with. They, they decided to come in with uh, an ambulance and side by side. We're going to take a quick break here to thank a couple of sponsors that helped make this episode possible for you today. But stay with us. we got a lot more coming up. Part of motorcycle adventure is the thrill of discovery, exploring new places and, and visiting some iconic places. And when that melds into one thing, it's hard to resist. And the Red Rock Garage is becoming one of those places that motorcyclists go well out of their way to visit. The Red Rock Garage is located in Beaverdell, British Columbia. Surrounded by mountains, it offers some of the best motorcycle riding anywhere, both on and off-road. And the folks at the Red Rock Garage are motorcycle enthusiasts themselves. That's how they became known as the coffee shop with the motorcycle addiction. They've got fuel, they've got coffee, of course, all the amenities that us riders want. They even have a campground and rental unit so you can make it a midway stop for you, which is a great idea. Get out and explore. And be sure to add the Red Rock Garage as one of your destinations for this year. In Beaverdale, British Columbia, it's redrockgarage.ca is their website. And make sure anytime you're talking with them, tell them that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Redrockgarage.ca. If you like to take your adventure bike into places that most dare not go, then the foot pegs that you may want to consider are the IMS Products Core Enduro. The Core Enduro foot peg is aimed at riders, well, like that, do those sorts of things with their bike. It's a wider than stock base that gives you that additional leverage needed to maneuver a heavy adventure bike in tight areas. And you got to consider the extra weight of this bike compared to a dirt bike. That leverage does huge things for your control. And the, the shape of the teeth keep your, because they're sharper teeth, they keep your foot planted right where you left them totally bolstering confidence in controlling your ride. In fact, the Core Enduro pegs had numerous off-road wins before they were ever released to the public. So have a look at them. They've got the Core Enduro, and of course, they've got them right on up to the ADV1 and 2 foot pegs as well, all covering different styles of riding. Have a look at what they've got at imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're talking with them, please throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And at that point, you're certain you're going to be fine. Yeah, I'm going to be fine. Someone's going to be there. I think they said within, you know, an hour and a half or two hours, the first responder would be there. And then he would have more information about help being on the way. And so that was, yeah, that was a major relief and even more a relief when the first uh, responder arrived. But in between time, I have to tell you something really embarrassing happened. I don't know if it was my nerves or what, but I had to go to the restroom like immediately right then. 
<laughs> and you can't exactly hobble away too far with the broken foot. Um, Pete was really discouraging that. He wanted me to just go right there next to him. And I was mortified. And this is a new relationship. <laughs> exactly. I was so mortified. I mean, I remember getting my cell phone and putting music on very loudly and <laughs> all kinds of ridiculous measures to try and cover that up. That was, I think, more embarrassing than the the break itself. <laughs> Again, it's a stress, isn't it? Because it's you're you're all of a sudden immobile from this thing. It's just one foot. You think you would have so much more capability with just one foot injured, but it's amazing how yeah. what it does to you. It's true. It's really true. So yeah, when the first uh, the first responder arrived, then it was really clear that there there was a solution. You know, he couldn't take me uh, in his truck, which I did not understand when he first arrived. As soon as I saw the vehicle coming down the road, I got really excited. I was ready to get out of there. I got my backpack on. I'm like, I'm ready to go. You know, and when he walked over to me, the first thing he said was he introduced himself and said, I'm sorry, Ashley, but I'm not going to be able to take you out of here. And I was like, what? <laughs> I don't get it. Why? Come on. I mean, I'm fine. I just rode on a motorcycle. I can go in a truck. Like, let's just get the show on the road. Let's get out of here. And, you know, for, for safety reasons, he can't just put me in the back of his truck or in the passenger seat of his truck. They've got to have an air compressed litter and get you out of there under proper procedures. Mm -hmm. So that took a little bit of understanding. And I'm pretty sure my second question to him was whether or not I could have a swig of whiskey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to drink before he got there because I was nervous that they would arrive and think that I was drinking and that's why I crashed. <laughs> it's a different picture. So I waited. <laughs> exactly. So I waited for him to arrive and I think he molded over for about 20 seconds and then said yes. So I was... I was relieved at that, at least. <laughs> and so he was there and we're still communicating with the folks over the inReach. And then uh, they sent an ambulance in on the gravel road and then a side-by-side -side with the local search and rescue with a gurney, uh, gurney on the back, like a stretcher on the back, mm -hmm. came out to, uh, to meet Ashley. I think it was an hour and a half or two hours before side-by-side, uh, -side, I think it was two side-by-sides actually, arrived. And one of them had that air compressed litter on it, which they put me on and uh, hauled me away to an ambulance that was waiting at the main road. So I think in total, it was about another three to four hours before I made it to an ambulance because the, the ride itself, the road was so rough getting out of there that it took about an hour and a half Um on the, the gurney or on the litter to get out. And I'll bet at that point you would have rather ridden in the truck. Um, no, I was like, at this point I was fully embracing the adventure of it all. Like, oh. wow, what a trip. I mean, this is crazy. So this, this sheriff comes out here in his truck and he's telling us how crazy the road was and asking what the hell we were doing out here. And then these, these good old boys get out there and, you know, my, my grandparents live, out near Yosemite, kind of, um, it's called Mariposa, the town they live in. And these guys, the reason I bring that up is because they reminded me of all my grandfather's friends, all of his fishing buddies and just good old boys, right? The guys who showed up with this, the, the side-by-sides and they're volunteers. So these are search and rescue volunteers. And that, it made so much sense to me at that point. You know, I, I was excited about the whole thing. Like, what a trip. I'm going to go on the back of this side-by-side, -side, bumping around on this road for an hour and a half. Well, and that's what I was picturing is the bumping around. I was thinking in, in the litter, you're going to be bounced around so much, whereas in the truck, you could have just sat there and, and you would have been fine. 
Yeah, it wasn't too bad. I mean, it was padded and stuff and my foot was wrapped up at this point. They had, he had, uh, the first responder had splinted my, my foot and, uh, wrapped it up pretty well. So I was in pain, but I think the, the excitement of the whole ordeal was overriding the pain, to be honest. Um, and they were so nice and I think it was, it was excitement for everyone. I mean, I don't think they have things like that happened too often out there. So. <laughs> it's true. I, I used to be in search and rescue and it is exciting when something goes wrong and you have to go out. That's what you train for, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they, they carry her out, they put her on the gurney, they take her to the ambulance. We separate at that point. And, uh, and one of the, uh, sheriffs who was there, uh, was, a uh, uh, had raised motocross bikes and was a pretty accomplished rider. And, um, he was like, Hey, why don't we go try to retrieve that other bike? And I was like, there's no way, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's the wrong bike. Like it's got gear on it. It's got no clutch. Like it terrain is challenging. Um, we made it about six miles from where the crash was doing the walk and ride thing. Um, and, uh, and so he, uh, he said, Oh, let's give it a try. And one of the other guys had a quad. And so they both got on the quad and it actually took us a long time uh, to get back to the bike. And it, about halfway through, he's like, dude, this is not six miles. I was like, it's six miles. Cause it was that <laughs> it's six miles. Watch. I was like, check your GPS. And we got there and he's like, ah, oh, you're right. It was, that was six miles. It's because it's so rough because it was so rough. Yeah. 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 And I, I was like, have you guys been on this, uh, road before? And he goes, this is not a road. <laughs> <laughs> so no. Uh, and so he, we got back there and actually, uh, he, yeah, we got the bike going and he was right, man. That guy could ride anything. It was really impressive. I was so impressed. He had no body armor, Ashley's helmet and no clutch. And he just said, if it runs, I can ride it. And, uh, he crashed a few times, bloodied up his knees. Um, and you know, it was, it was, it was tough. It was really tough. Like especially on the hill climbs, just no ability to feather the clutch, you know? So you turn the ignition, the bike starts moving. Mm-hmm. Normally and, uh, I would ask if you've been back to there, but you already said you went back. Yeah. <laughs> some Actually, people I went back together. Yeah. Some yeah. people listen and probably think, well, why would you do that? Oh, hell yeah. We're going back. We're not going to end it like that. No way. Man. <laughs> yeah. The next morning, like after, after the hospital visit and everything, I'd been released. We had breakfast the next morning and I met a guy who saw my foot wrapped up and he walks over in the the diner and says, are you that girl that broke your leg on the motorcycle? And I was like, yeah, how'd you know? He goes, oh man, you were the talk of the town yesterday. Everybody knows about you. We were all on the radio, listening in, trying to figure out where you were and what was happening. I was cracking up. I mean, it was so in line with with what I thought and why I liked those guys so much. <laughs> Ultimately, what was what was the damage to your foot? Ultimately, I had, uh, so my cuboid bone, which is on the very outside of your foot was pulled away by, it's a really small little bone and it was pulled away by a ligament. So I, I think just, it kind of snapped off of, off of my foot, um, because of the fall. So when that crunch happened, the, the ligament just pulled the little bone off of my foot. So it was kind of floating around out there, um, it seemed like a pretty, a pretty strange break and not one that they see very often. And when I described the scene to them, they said that, that it made sense with the crunching of the bike, that that would have happened, that it would have just like yanked it right off of the side of my foot. Mm. So, um, yeah, pretty easy recovery though. It wasn't, it wasn't too bad. I did not follow many of the instructions. I wasn't supposed to be weight bearing for, I think two, a week or two. And, 
I, I was. All I had was an air cast, and I think I was weight-bearing within the first week. But it healed up well, and uh, it works works now. So that's all that counts. And you're not walking in circles now? No, <laughs> exactly. <That's a> <laughs> For sure. At this point, you know, what I'm curious about is, well, a number of things, actually, and I want to go back to, to Geos for this, um, Geos, Geos, whichever you, however you want to say it. I want to go back and find out about SOS and, and what constitutes an SOS, like what is an emergency and what do they sort of condone you pressing the SOS button for and what do they frown upon you press, pressing that SOS button? And then there's also the the questions about who pays for a rescue, not, not if you're in Canada or the United States, because we know that those rescues will be covered by our governments. But what if you're on vacation on an adventure somewhere else in the world? So let's go back and speak with Emily Thompson and find out more about this. Out of the the calls that you get on this, the SOS calls that you get, how many of them are, do you think, real SOSs as opposed to someone sort of using it when they probably shouldn't have? Um, I mean, I mean, it just depends. You know, people accidentally bump it or people are just, you know, trying to test it out. Uh, but uh, it really just depends. Like I said, just some people are just like, oh, let me press this button, see how it works. That happens sometimes. <laughs> I, I was thinking more of the people who who press it because they've got a flat tire or something or, or you know, something that that isn't really an emergency, I guess. I mean, it happens, but of course we're going to help them. No matter what. We won't just say, no, we can't help you. We'll, if we get that SOS in and we, we don't even, like I said, we don't even have to know what the emergency is. I mean, if we do know more information, that's great. And, you know, emergency services is happy, but it's not required if, but if we do know, you know, they need a tow or whatever it may be, the agency we're in contact with will most likely put us in contact with the appropriate uh, tow company nearby that can assist. And we'll still help, you know, coordinate with that. Is there anything that the GIOS says, you know, that has some sort of a public stance or, or an official stance on, on what should be an emergency and what is not? No, because what everybody constitutes an emergency, it's, a, it's different for everyone. Like what you consider an emergency maybe is going to be different than what I consider an emergency or someone that's out hunting or whatever it may be. Everybody constitutes an emergency differently. Yeah. So when, when someone responds to one of the, let's say you call the sheriff's department and they go out and they respond to something that um, maybe, you know, isn't really, they don't consider an emergency. Do you get any sort of feedback from that? Is there any flack that happens? I mean, you know, they'll give us uh, maybe some advice on if it is a two-way device, you know, we'll, They'll tell us what messages they want us to send or ask questions. And, you know, if they can help them just by messaging, maybe if they're lost or something, they can just kind of help escort them out. And so we'll be that person. You will be the person that's messaging back and forth for them and just kind of instructing on behalf of the responding agency or, you know, it, or if it is a tow, like I said, we'll be in contact with, they'll put us in contact with the correct tow company. They won't just be like, no, we can't help you. <laughs> they'll try to do their best to direct us where we need to go. And they don't get frustrated with it. They don't look at this. None of the agencies you deal with uh, look at this like as some sort of annoyance, you know, an extra thing they just don't need to deal with. Mm, no, no, I don't think so. I mean, we've established these relationships with these agencies. So it's, I mean, in the beginning, it was different. <laughs> it's <was> way <laughs> different. You know, we'd have to spend a little bit more time explaining who we are. But now that we've, you know, we've been doing this for several years, it's gotten to be where, no, they know, I mean, they know who we are and they understand that but the, you know, these devices that we're contacting them for. So, so is this, is this pretty straightforward for you guys? You, you get a call in. I mean, it's not a, it's, there's no panic. I assume, you know, behind the scenes, <laughs> you guys know what you're doing. It's just a matter of connecting to the right people, letting them know what's going on and, and you're off to the next one. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's as simple as that. Uh, we're just used to, you know, you never know what you're going to get, what kind of type of emergency it is. We've gotten so many different things. It's never, nobody ever, you know, panics when something comes in or maybe a new person if it's their first day, but people aren't training for several months before they're released and actually handling calls on their own. What kind of bizarre um, calls have you had? <laughs> oh, where do I begin? <laughs> yeah, it's something new every day, but probably one of my the calls that I remember so well was uh, a satellite phone call that I had it was these two men that were out on their vessel in the middle of the ocean and they called in and they were just shouting that their vessel was sinking, their vessel was sinking and that they were using buckets to try to get the water out of the boat. And then the call disconnected. And so I'm trying to get the location and figure out where they're at. And then they called back again and just panicking. Um, My boat is sinking, my boat is sinking. And so I'm starting to coordinate with the Maritime Rescue Coordination Center and trying to get them out there. But by the time that, you know, they did get out there, but the the device stopped calling back. And so I couldn't, you know, make sure he was still okay. Last thing I heard was that he, uh, the boat had sank and they were on a orange and black life raft. And I said, okay, you know, they're, uh, they're en route. They're sending a helicopter and a boat just stay put. And then like I said, never heard from them again. And then the agency said, well, we got out there and we found and the orange and black life raft, but not the men. So of course I'm like, well, okay, keep looking. <laughs> Maybe that's not the right one. But turns out we ended up finding out that a fishing vessel had came by and picked them up and took them to shore. So they were okay. Oh, wow. But uh, yeah, like we stay in contact with the agency until we receive confirmations of something, you know. So we, I was glad that I was glad to hear the, that they made contact with that vessel and confirmed that they did actually pick them up. Yeah. Cause you just totally expect, I, I thought you were going to tell a different story here. <laughs> <laughs> Most people do. Yeah. Yeah. So when the rescue is done, is there some sort of uh, reconciliation you do with it? Do you, do you write up a report about each one? So we have a ticket for every incident that we have, that we, you know, that we receive. So we, in these notes for the ticket, we have everything, the time it came in, any messages that were sent or received from the device, any emails, phone calls, detailed notes, just because we want to be able to go back to that ticket and read exactly what happened. Now, many of these devices um, have worldwide coverage. If you're somewhere else in the world, let's say I'm in South America and in the mountains of, I don't know, Peru, and I, and I press this, who do you send? Oh, we, like I said before, we have a, uh, we have rescue coordination center, not we, but we coordinate with a rescue coordination center that's actually in that country. So if it's in Peru, we're going, we have a specific point of contact that we will call, give them all the information and then they will coordinate the rescue with maybe emergency services or they know, because they're going to know which star team they're going to need to send out. They're going to know who has resources and where. So that's why we coordinate with a rescue cor- a main point of contact. That way we're not tossed around everywhere. And we built this relationship with those, that one agency within that country. And so it's just easier for us to call them, give them all the information, and then they just help, you know, basically coordinate it all. And we stay in contact with them. Now, the big question is, who pays for all this? Uh, if the agency is going to charge, they will charge the customer once the rescue is complete. Ooh, wow. So this could get very, very expensive. And you really don't have any control over it. No, I mean, we don't. I, no, they, but we don't really work with a lot of agencies that try to charge before. So that's helpful. But we also offer our search and rescue benefit that is available for any you know customers using a geo-supported device. If they do happen to press the SOS and get rescued and they're charged, they can utilize that search and rescue benefit that we offer. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, um, so you've, you've got um, search and rescue and then you've got medevac. Can you talk about those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the search and rescue benefit that we have, we have our standard SAR-50 benefit. And then we have a couple others, but the standards are 50 
it covers up to $100,000 in rescue resources. But for the Star 50, you can only use $50,000 per incident. So say, you know, you need to be evacuated via helicopter and that helicopter agency charges you, I don't know, $5,000 for that incident. They just send you an invoice. If you have, as long as you have our search and rescue benefits and you activated the SOS, you can file a SAR claim and to receive reimbursement for that bill. Okay. And what about medevac? So medevac is for when you are at least 99 miles away from your home and say you are in a hospital in Chile and you need to be transported to the hospital closest to your home uh, for maybe it's surgery or just whatever it may be. So what we would do is you would just need to contact the IERCC and the IERCC will make all the arrangements with uh, the agency that we coordinate all the, med- or the medevacs through. We will uh, contact them and make all the arrangements to get them sent back home. And that's totally covered. I mean, you, you could be talking a very, very expensive flight, uh, helicopter ride, whatever for this. Mm-hmm. Yep. It will. Uh, yeah. We handle all of that coordination to the, like I said, the hospital closest to their home. Now, those the uh, search and rescue um, and the medevac coverage that you have in there is in three different levels from, from what I saw, uh, leisure, adventure, and extreme. So those that you said, those are actually our bundled packages. So we offer a bundle, you know, where you can bundle, you know, the search and rescue and the medevac if you, you know, if you think you're going to need both. Uh, you might as well just get the package and make it easier. You know, we have, like you said, we have the leisure pack, the adventure pack, and the extreme pack. And like I said, the only difference is the SAR that's included with it. All of them include the global medevac. But we have our SAR 150, SAR 100, and SAR HR, which SAR HR is the SAR high risk. And I think you've got over 600,000 customers um, and and working with 165 countries. What if it's not one of the 165 countries? Uh, So that number is actually just the countries that we have handled incidents in. Oh, I see. So we will, yeah, we will coordinate anywhere. We've never just turned down somebody. If you get one like in a place you haven't dealt with before, do you just start like looking for numbers or is this all already done? So that's how it used to be, kind of. But now, <laughs> Show me the because, phone book for Bolivia. <laughs> <laughs> yes, basically. Just give me whoever you can get a hold of. <laughs> uh, no, now, I mean, we have a person that uh, keeps up with all of the agencies and the contact information. So we'll go through and make sure all that information is up to date. So if we happen to get an emergency in Kyrgyzstan, we're going to have the appropriate agency to contact. Hmm. And how long has Gios been around for? Uh, since 2007. 2007. So it's done all that in that period of time. And it's not, not a real mm-hmm. long time. And is just the only company that does this? Yep. We are the only one that you know monitors all those devices. You know, this Garmin spot, we are the place that the SOS is sent. The only place. Well, the, Emily, that is great. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, of course. It's no problem at all. That was Emily Thompson. She is the Director of Partner Relations at Geos. And now we're just going to zip back to Pete and Ashley and get some final thoughts on on their experience and what they've learned. In the end, after it's all said and done, did you have any sort of contact with, with um, Gios or, or with Garmin or anything like that? Did they get a hold of you at all to, to say, hey, how did it go? Uh, oh, I'm sure they did. Uh, I don't have, remember, have like a vivid memory of it. But I mean, I, those guys were just like, they're pros, man. It was it was just the experience of interacting with the device and interacting with the people on the other end of that was flawless. Just absolutely flawless. Yeah. 
What would you say to um, anyone asking about, should they bother with this satellite communication device? Oh man, yeah, definitely. You know, the inReach is 100%. Like it's crazy. To, this, this technology exists. It's not very expensive. And uh, you don't have to feel bad about using it because this is their business, man. This is what they do. And uh, it's there. And to go off in the backcountry without it, it's just totally nuts, in my opinion. It's not very expensive. And especially if you're by yourself, when you're laying there like in excruciating pain, uh, stuck, few options, having that device, you would pay a million dollars for that device. You would empty your savings account. You'd hand over the title to your house to have one of those devices in your hand. You know, it's so worth it. Like, so we take, we take them everywhere. I'm a, I'm a huge fan and I don't have any affiliation with the company. I don't get anything from them at all. I mean, that, that, that device is a lifesaver. So looking back, having said all of this and you know, it's, this is some, some time ago now looking back, would there be anything different you would do? Um, be on a different bike, (laughs) (laughs) not, not take that bike out there to begin with. Uh, honestly, yeah. Now knowing, so, so now I know four years later, I know Southeastern Oregon, like the back of my hand. I love it. Uh, having ridden all over the world, it's still one of my favorite places to ride. It's just amazing how in a day you can be out in the middle of nowhere and the, the landscape changes so much from day to day. If you're out there on a week long or a 10 day desert trip, you can feel like you're visiting five or six different planets. I mean, and it's really so solitary out there. There aren't many people. Um, you come across wagon roads and it's just a really interesting place. I love riding out there, but knowing the terrain, the way that I do now, I would have taken my other bike. I had a dirt bike. Um, it wasn't plated, but I think I would have rather taken the risk of being on a non-plated dirt bike than to take my 650 out there. So that's the only thing I would change. But to be honest, I don't know, having gotten through it, I wouldn't change a damn thing. I mean, what a, what an, what an interesting story. And, and what a, what now I feel so much more prepared for any injury. It's going to happen at some point with motorcycling, right? Even if it's a minor injury. Um, and I just feel more prepared to, to make decisions now in a level-headed manner and to not panic having been through that experience. So I don't think I would change anything. Anything you've learned from this that you would pass on to others that you say, Hey, like, I mean, cause the, the thing about the bike, I think is, is really valid, you know, the wrong mm, bike yeah. in the right terrain. Um, but, but is there yeah. something you would pass on to, to somebody else? I guess two things that I would pass on. Number one, like we said, with the bike, the game should not be what's the most inappropriate machine I can take on this terrain. Um, so often when I see people touting their abilities or the trail that they rode on such and such bike, I'm sort of scratching my head going, well, but I've seen your garage. Why did you have that bike? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you want to do skills courses or, or, um, you know, skill building on a big motorcycle to just see what you can do and to, to push your limits as a rider. Great. But do that in a controlled environment, not out in the middle of nowhere where you're going to need a rescue, you know, try to prevent those, those cases by, by choosing the right machine for the job. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing that I would say is just don't be scared to hit that button, like evaluate the scenario and use the resources that are at your disposal. 
Um, don't take it lightly for sure, because it, it does call on so many different people um, when they respond to having pressed that SOS button, but uh, to not get in your head too much about needing to push it. You know, we've prepared ourselves with this resource and when it comes time to use it, just being sure and, uh, and, and not beating yourself up for having to, to do it. That was Pete Day and Ashley Myrie, both from Moscow Moto. We, we've got some photos from this rescue that they're talking about on the website um, that gives you an, an idea of, you know, visually what it was like for them. Uh, the other person I spoke with was Emily Thompson. She is the Director of Partner Relations at Geos. And we spoke at the end there about the insurance uh, that you can get through Geos. You can look at it on their website and we'll have a link to that in our show notes. But um, most of that information, I think, is included with almost every satellite transceiver you buy now because everyone goes through Geos. It is the company that answers all those SOS calls. So you're dealing with one company. Anyway, all those links and those photos are in the show notes for this episode on our website. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com and MotoBreeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. that about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and of course to you as always for listening to the show we really appreciate it very much if you um haven't heard of our other show we've got another show called arr raw comes out monthly you have to subscribe separately it's found everywhere podcasts are found drop by our website to check out that show and this show with all the information including the show notes for each episode at adventureriderradio.com and if you aren't doing it already, we need your support. This is built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. And we need you to jump in there. Don't sit back thinking everybody else is going to do it because you have to get up and do it. So drop by our website, click on the support button and see what we've got going there. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker for your pen. Or anything $50 or more gets you a mention on our Raw show. And we need you there. So anyway, now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. If you're not snowed in somewhere, my name is Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. My name is Karolis Melauskas from The Coldest Ride and you are listening to Adventure Ride Radio.